Hello, hello. I am Ashley Caudill, Senior Instructional Designer at the School of Education and Human Development at the University of Virginia, and welcome to Designed for Online. In this podcast, we will discuss hot topics around online teaching and learning. We will be posting new episodes the first and third Tuesday of every month, so be sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out. The university student population is incredibly diverse. Each student brings their own unique backgrounds and abilities, and there isn't necessarily a mold for what a typical student looks like or what a student needs to be successful in the classroom. The National Center for Education Statistics reports that 19% of undergraduate students report having a disability, and there is a significant gap in college enrollment and completion rates between young adults with and without disabilities. Research has also found that students with disabilities who do not experience a sense of belonging within eight weeks of arriving at college are at a high risk of dropping out. I also want us to be mindful that not only do our students have diverse abilities, we also have a diversity of generations within our student population. More than half of enrolled undergraduates can be described as post-traditional learners. These students are typically ages 25 and older who may have families and work full-time while also pursuing a degree. So how can we accommodate and ensure we have an inclusive environment that fosters a sense of belonging in our student population, regardless of their ability and generational differences? In this episode, I am joined by a faculty and staff member from the University of Virginia, where we discuss ways faculty can foster an inclusive environment for students of diverse abilities and generational differences. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Designed for Online podcast. Today's episode is a continuation of our last episode in which we talked about creating a sense of belonging in the classroom for our diverse learners. Today, I have a faculty member from UVA's School of Education and Human Development and a staff member from UVA's Student Disability Access Center who are going to talk about ways faculty can foster an inclusive environment for students of diverse backgrounds and generational differences. But before we dive in, I wanted to let them quickly introduce themselves to you all so we can get a better sense of who they are and their backgrounds. Diane, can you start us off? I sure can. Hi, I'm Diane Whaley. I'm a professor in the School of Education and Human Development in my 23rd year here at the university. And uh, I teach a variety of classes. My area of specialization is motivation and self-perceptions. I am a developmental psychologist and I'm most interested in adult and older adult populations. So my work is really centered around those age groups. And I'm Barbara Sunder. I am the director of the Student Disability Access Center here on grounds. And we are the centralized department working with our students with disabilities and working towards creating and fostering an inclusive educational experience for our students. Thank you both so much for being here today. So I'm gonna just go ahead and dive into the questions I have for you, if that's okay. So the first one I have is, how do we define diverse abilities? And what are the unique challenges faced by students of diverse abilities in the university classroom? Looking at the definition of 
disability has really evolved over the years. In the early days, it really was looking at this medicalized model of disability where it, it honed in on the individual and specifically what was wrong with the individual and what had to be fixed with that individual so they could navigate the world in the same way as say an average person. And I use the word average here very, very loosely. I'm glad to say that that definition has evolved over time. We now look at a much more holistic view of our people with disabilities. Instead of focusing on the individual as the problem, we instead are looking outward. What are the different barriers that we have in place? And those could be attitudinal barriers. Those could be educational barriers. They could be physical. They could be environmental. And how do we change and adapt those in order for the person to then have that inclusive experience within that environment? Yeah, I really appreciate um, you talking about what the person with a disability might have to offer, you know, and from our perspective, I'm in the Applied Developmental Science Program, and, and we very much take a strength-based approach, right, to thinking about learning. And so what can the individual, regardless of who they are, contribute, and uh, what are the strengths that they bring? And What can instructors do to make certain that students of diverse abilities are accommodated into the classroom and beyond accommodating their specific needs, what steps can our faculty take to develop a learning environment where they feel as if they belong? To answer the first part, you know, the very basic, the basics, I should say, would be ensuring that they're working closely with us and working closely with the students to identify potential barriers within their classroom, sometimes we identify those for them. And that could be anything from, you know, the timed exam, right? That's something that's very common that faculty will see and will very commonly be coming out in a letter from us requesting that the student be allowed more time to take that exam. You know, so, so those would be very basics, right? Just working with the students, with their, the, the known students with disabilities and with those accommodation requests. In terms of fostering this classroom environment, though, in which students can thrive, that is a much, a much bigger question. Um, one of the most important things that faculty can do is just setting the tone with their class. And by that, I mean anything from whatever statements they have in their syllabus to whatever they feel most compelled to discuss. Day one of class is, I think, just stating this is a welcoming environment and I welcome feedback. I'm happy you mentioned setting the tone from the get-go because um, I work primarily with online faculty. And one thing that we say is make sure that your syllabus is accessible. Make sure that if somebody was using a screen reader, it was screen reader compatible. I feel like that's something that's so easy that a lot of our faculty can do. And it's something that they might not think of. So thank you for saying the very first thing to think about is the very first day. What can we do to make sure everyone feels a sense of belonging? Yeah, I would add another really common misunderstanding, you know, with some students, and this goes for first generation students and maybe some, you know, returning students, is that they, they don't understand what office hours are. And in fact, I've heard this, that some students uh, think that office hours are the time that you can't bother the professor, right, instead of the exact opposite. So I make it a point on the first day to talk about the fact that you're welcome at office hours. I think 
what has been really a good thing about through the pandemic is, you know, now that I'm back in the classroom, I have the choice. Students can come to my office if they'd like, or we can do an online, you know, discussion. And, and students, when you open it up and say, I'm here for you, you know, I'm a potential source for a recommendation letter that definitely clicks with students. Um, and then they'll, they will come. So I, I think that first day is really critical. So let's take it a step deeper and talk about universal design for learning. Universal design for learning is often referenced in relation to ensuring that educational content and activities are accessible to all students. So do these principles have a role to play in what we're discussing today? From one perspective, you know, I've always seen any kind of universal design, good design, right? You know, that really works for everyone. But it's, you know, somewhat mysterious to a lot of faculty of what we really mean by that. And unfortunately, we're not trained, at, except if we know the director of SDAC or, you know, other, other resources to, um, to reach out for that information. So, so yes, I think it's super important, but I would venture to guess that more faculty than not are afraid of it, if you will. Well, and, and I certainly want to put a plug in in the sense that we do have a lot of expertise here on grounds, but faculty would have to opt in, you know, in order to access that material, which is time and it's energy. And that's that's difficult. That being said, just in terms of of looking at basic principles of it, UDL really bucks that trend of learning being the one size fits all classroom experience, right, with the idea that you know, I'm going to teach it exactly the way that I was taught, you know, it'll be four exams plus a final, like it or lump it. Instead, what it focuses on is looking at different modes of engagement, looking at different modalities for both expressing what they've learned in the classroom, um, as well as that receptive um, modality. So how are they taking it in? You know, and what it comes down to is that classrooms are diverse. Right. And and we know that we we know that just by walking into any classroom here at the university, that students are coming to us from different backgrounds. They're coming to us with different experiences, different strengths, different weaknesses. And we really owe it to them to then be able to give them that educational experience that really will speak to them, you know, building on their strengths and interests. So examples might be, so starting with what is the goal of the class? What are the guardrails that I can set up for these students? What are the outcomes I want them to achieve? So what those learning goals are, but then from there, giving students structure, but choice and flexibility. So for example, you know, if you're teaching XYZ, showing it in different means, it can be graphics, it can be videos, it can be, you know, readings, so that students can take in that information in a way that best fits their strengths. Um, in terms of multimodality of expression, it's okay in order to let the faculty know what I've learned, you know, do you want to write a paper about it? Do you want to do a presentation? You know, just being very flexible about how, how they demonstrate their skills and knowledge can really create this really dynamic and fun classroom environment and which one in which, you know, ideally all students thrive. I completely agree. When I work with my faculty, the very first thing that I do is I look through their syllabus and their objectives and their instructional content. 
And I would say at the very first pass, I always see nothing but readings. And it takes that second for me to say, here is an outline of your class and here's all the instructional content. It's all readings. And it takes that moment of them to click, to be like, you're absolutely right. Why can't I use a podcast, maybe designed for online episode podcast, <laughs> or why can't I do a video of some sort, or even a graphic? There's so many different, great multimodal examples that you can create or pull from. So you don't necessarily have to reinvent the wheel because I know some faculty are like, yes, I want to use graphics or infographics, but I don't know where to start. And I'm like, first thing to start is Google. There are so many things out there. So why not just go ahead and utilize some of the resources that is already available? And then that can take some of the burden off the faculty that thinks they have to create it from scratch. And I would say that's more interesting as a faculty member as well, to have that kind of variety. I mean, I know I have changed substantially in the way that I teach over the years, um, some from experience, but some from doing workshops and learning from people like both of you that I'm doing this podcast with. It makes it more fun. And, you know, now I must admit, I fall down rabbit holes on occasion trying to find that perfect video um, for the topic at hand, but that's okay. You know, I'll just give a quick example. This is my adult development class, and, and we were doing some work around, you know, adult learning styles and adult learning theory. And I found, you know, this one video that was terribly ageist. And I happen to have in my class a lot of cognitive science majors. So I showed it to them and I said, something didn't hit me quite right. What was it? You know, so what are your thoughts about it? And they were like, well, that's not what the amygdala does. And they, you know, and, and it was wonderful. They all, you know, brought in really issues I wasn't thinking about. It engaged them their own, you know, from their own where they were. Um, with their own knowledge base, because uh, that happens to be a class that's very mixed, both in terms of years and in terms of majors and so forth. And so, you know, the video was not the one that I really wanted to show to exemplify the concept, but it turned out to be a wonderful discussion starter because it wasn't so good. I think that's awesome that you found a video that wasn't very good and you flipped it to say, hey, let's apply some of the concepts that we've already learned. And what's standing out to you? Why doesn't it hit right? And I think that's such a great learning experience as opposed to just watch this video and learn about it, but it really has them reflect on their learning. And I think that's really beneficial for both the faculty member and for the students. Because like you said, you learned stuff that you didn't even think about. So I think that's really, really cool that you did that. So as much as I am enjoying this conversation, we are gonna have to take a quick break and when we come back, we will dive into how generational differences can affect students and what faculty should keep in mind when considering online learning and students from diverse backgrounds. Hello, everyone. I hope you're enjoying the conversation. I wanted to take a moment to give you a little bit of a brain break by presenting this episode's trivia question. But first, I wanted to give you the answer to last episode's trivia question, which was, Area 51 is located in which U.S. state? The answer, Nevada. Did you get it correct? So now, let's talk about this episode's trivia question. Tennis star Serena Williams won which major tournament while pregnant with her first child? Curious what the answer is? Be sure to tune in to our next episode to find out. And we're back. 
So before the break, we discussed diverse abilities and the steps faculty can take to accommodate students who have specific needs and how we can create a sense of belonging in the classroom for those students. But now I want to talk about generational differences and how that can affect students. So my first question is, what does it mean when we hear the term generational differences and how do generational differences affect students? You know, th there's a lot of misconceptions about what a college student looks like. And we are at a university here that is very traditional. And I use that word guardedly, if you will, because it's very clear that to the traditional student is changing, right? So for example, one of those websites that I pulled up, you know, for my students to look at, talked about how even though 80% of people think that the majority students are 18 to 22, that the average age of students now, and this was a couple of years ago, is 26.4. And so, you know, clearly we do have a very, a changing demographic, even at the undergraduate level, and that those generational differences matter. We talk about in my adult development class that age doesn't cause a lot of things that we attribute age to, but is a factor in it. And, you know, if we think about that, even with a 26-year-old or a 30-year-old in an undergraduate class, and I have talked to some of these students, there is a difference in the way that you see the world. There's a difference in our experiences and the way we take in information. You know, like I heard one quote from um, a video I was watching that talked about how this woman said, I am here to learn. I'm not here to be everybody's mother, right? And, and if you think about that, you know, to have to be forced to play these, you know, multiple roles when other students aren't. And so those generational differences have consequences, you know, and, and, and again, I mean, the first step is recognizing and from a strength-based approach, like we talked about earlier, how can we use this additional knowledge to contribute to a richer discussion in the class? Although this is not my area of expertise, I do want to share an experience I had personally when I was an undergrad and I was this, you know, quote, traditional undergrad age student when I was in college. And I took a course that was not required, but it had non-traditional age students in it. It was actually the vast majority of students, a wonderful literature course. And it was by far my favorite course because of the fact that we got to have rich, fulfilling conversations about the books that we were reading. So much so that I gave up watching my favorite television show every Wednesday night so I could attend this class. And we all like had a moment at the end being like, this was the best class we've ever had. And it was, it was a beautiful experience that I still think of, you know, 20 some odd years later. That's so lovely. I'm going to share an experience that's not as lovely <laughs> that I had when I was an undergrad because I was the quote traditional undergrad student and we took a I was in a class that was required for my major and there was one student in our class that was I think he said he was about 36 years old and everybody else in the class was around 2021 and he felt almost left out because a lot of people would look and be like why is this person here? Like he's not fitting in. Um, and that really took a toll on him. And it was really heartbreaking to see, but we became really good friends. And he told me about all of the challenges that he had um, being a non-traditional student because he started his undergrad career later. So my question to you are, 
have you heard or what are the challenges that some of our adult or quote non-traditional students have in the classroom or even on campus? I think there's multiple challenges, right? That that uh, I was speaking just to a student this semester who's came back to school to, you know, as an undergrad is about in her mid to upper 20s, I guess, and, you know, as a second or third year. And, you know, there's lots and lots of social challenges, right, of the belonging and fitting in. Um, there's even, you know, there, it doesn't take long to lose touch with uh, technologies, right, and, and just feel like you're just a step behind that, you know, the other students. And, um, but I think the belonging is the biggest piece. You're not going to be, you're going to have other interests. You might have a family, you, you know, almost certainly have a job. Uh, so, you know, your priorities are very different. And so you're not going to be going to the same social events as others. And so think of a, in a classroom environment, the chatter that happens before the class begins, or even when you break up into groups in a class, your priorities are different and you feel like you're, again, the other. It, you know, it works for some people really well, but for some people that in particular, who really focus in and want to be part of that community, if you will, it can be a struggle and, and that's particularly exacerbated at some place like UVA that has such a traditional, you know, largely very traditional student body. And I do want to add speaking to my students too, who are students with disabilities and also older than their peers. I hear reflections such as it takes me more time to do X, Y, Z, whether that's reading, whether that's crafting a paper or whatnot, and they have less time, you know, and, and again, it's because of, of those issues that Diane brought up, right? So it's, they have a job, they have a family, et cetera. They just have added pressures added onto them. And it just, it just adds in another layer of complexity to their experience. So I know we spoke a little bit to this already talking about how our adult students can often have significant responsibilities outside of the classroom, whether they have a family at home, whether they are already in a career. How do you think this affects their sense of belonging in the classroom or even just globally on a college campus? You know, I think it, it really depends on the college campus, I suppose, but I can speak from being on in this campus for a, a relatively long period of time that, you know, that, that at UVA, at our institution, it is expected that you're not just engaged in your academic work, but that you're very engaged in those co-curriculars, extracurriculars, however you want to phrase them, right? That you're involved with student organizations, that you're doing, you know, volunteer activity and so forth. And that's the piece, of course, it's going to be, you know, pretty difficult for a student that's coming in that, you know, does have those other added responsibilities of work and school and so forth. But there's pressure to continue to do that, right? And so, so how do you fit all of that in? I mean, I remember a student from last year, as a matter of fact, you know, during the pandemic and so forth, but which made, you know, the situation in some ways even worse what had to be kind of put to the side was any connections, you know, campus-wide connections, right? And so, so if we think about that, then you're missing 
you might feel like you're missing part of the experience. But I'm going to go back to my strength-based approach and think about, you know, for me, it's about how can we use those experiences, you know, to contribute to the dialogue in the classroom. And, and I really try to, I mean, with all of my students, but certainly with students that have, you know, maybe some more varied experiences, is to bring those in. How do those apply to the concepts that we're learning in this class? And, you know, we've, uh, I mean, I have a student this semester that, uh, you know, she's, uh, she's been a nurse and, um, and now is going back to school and has done many different things. I think the students really enjoy hearing from those, from the, you know, those experiences because they can, you know, see themselves in, in that in the future, if you will. So I think there is, you know, uh, some difficulty because of their lived experience, but that experience really should be a benefit to all of our students. I love all the positive thinking. I love that so much. <laughs> so this is kind of a segue to what you just said, Diane. And I wanted to take a moment to really focus in on our online students. How do we make those students that are at a distance feel just as welcome? So my question to you is, what are some ways that you would suggest faculty keep in mind when considering those online students that are from diverse backgrounds or ages or abilities? Do you have any advice for them? I mean, my first experience, of course, with that was during the pandemic when we were forced to go online. And, and, you know, I think I told all of my classes at the time, I was like, you know, I have a year or so left before I retire. And I was 100% sure that I would get through that time without having to teach online. And I was 100% wrong. <laughs> so given that, but I mean, I can truthfully say, I, I feel like I learned so much through that, you know, through that process. And it has, you know, I think really added to the way that I teach now. So keeping some things from um, that online experience. So, so one of the benefits was that I could have some of our, our students um, in our school that are online only. And, you know, so for one of the classes I teach, you know, is motivation. And I found this whole, you know, a group of students, another major that was just a strictly online program that could now take the class. And I didn't even realize that, that there was this whole group of students that really wanted to take the class, but couldn't because I was only teaching it in person. So from that, we found out that, you know, students were also during the pandemic on the West Coast and, and, you know, in Europe, that ability to do some things asynchronously, right, that, that being able to record my videos were kind of overviews of the, every week. And so we really spent our time together in more deep discussion and getting past the content and into the meaning and the, and the application, which is really much more important to me. And so I think in that regard, you know, the non-traditional students, I mean, that's what they want, right? You know, adult learning theory talks about the importance of the why, uh, why am I learning this and, and why is it important to me and how can you make it more important to me, right? And that's, that's my job is to try to do that. But yeah, so, so I think that there are in a way more tools available to us when we're teaching online than even when we're teaching in person. And I didn't realize that until I was forced into it. 
Diane, you really captured some great points about how you were able to really still have this interactive dialogue with your students, no matter where they were, um, that I think is great. And then also too, just in terms of going back to this idea of universal design and learning, it sounds like what you were able to do was to create some flexibility within that, right? So students were able to do things on their own time and then get back together with the big group for a more engaging time together that, that I would hope would foster that community of online learners. Yeah, and I think another kind of strategy that seemed to work really well is to do more peer-to-peer, -peer, peer reviews, peer assessments and um, observations. And again, you know, if you can be purposeful in the way that you pair up the students in your class, you know, what's important there, of course, is to do it in kind of a low stakes way, right? So we're just about to do this um, peer assessment in one of the classes that I teach, and I made it very clear to them that you're not grading the person, you're looking what you can learn from how they approach this topic compared to how you approached it and asking questions, deepening your learning rather than, you know, grading. And so that removes the, you know, some of the fear, which tends to be more for the traditional student than the non-traditional student. Um, that kind of peer assessment is, is, again, good learning principles, right, no matter who the individual is, but that can kind of deepen the experience and make it not just about me um, and, you know, and share, because very rarely, we, you know, our students don't get so much of an opportunity to see what other people are doing. I am a big proponent of peer-to-peer -peer interaction, even if it's something, even though the dreaded group assignment that so many people are like, don't put me in a group assignment or a group project. But I find that's where people really build their relationships in a sense of community, because you guys have to work together. You're essentially forced to work together, but in a good way. And you guys can build and bounce ideas off of each other. And if you are in a group with somebody who is a non-traditional student, think of all the different experiences that they bring to the table and what great things can come of that. Yeah, you know, so I am a huge group project kind of person, but I make it really clear on day one, I ask them how many people have done a group you know, group project, everybody raises their hand. How many people have had a miserable experience doing the group project and everybody raises their hand. And then I say, okay, this is gonna be different because we're gonna be purposeful and we're going to work at it. And we're going to do lots of things to create that, you know, group dynamic so that we know you're not all expected to do the same thing in the project. Everybody's going to contribute what their strength is. And so, so we, you know, we do a lot of very purposeful, explicit work around how do you work together, uh, you know, effectively as a group, which is important for them going forward in their lives, clearly. And so I'm very proud to say that most people come to the end of that class, and it's a big class. We have 15 groups in, in, you know, this semester, and they far more often than not say, this was the best group experience I've had in my time here. Being an instructional designer, you are just making my heart so happy, talking about being purposeful and communicating expectations. I'm like, yes, keep talking, Diane, <laughs> keep talking. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> 
<laughs> Unfortunately, that is all the time that we have today. I wanted to thank you both so much for coming on and talking about our diverse learners and the generational differences. I know that our faculty are really going to benefit from hearing about your experiences as well as the advice that you have given them. So thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Yes, thanks for having us. And that concludes this episode of Designed for Online. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Barbara Zunder and Diane Whaley. And I wanted to leave you with this last thought. Promoting a sense of belonging for students of all backgrounds, abilities, and generations benefit us all. And it encourages the success of students in the classroom, on campus, and after graduation. A culture of belonging influences all students to be more inclusive, both now and in their future careers and communities. If you have an exciting topic you want to hear on future Designed for Online episodes, feel free to email me at ac8ga at virginia.edu. As always, thanks for listening and talk to you soon.